I want to begin with a disclaimer. You should never interpret anything that comes out of my mouth as an expression of partisan politics. Um, I'm of the opinion that you can put both political parties in a paper sack, shake it up, and it doesn't matter which one of them rules out first. I also do not hold any single personality accountable for the, de the moral decay in this country. It's been a huge group effort um, by, by any number of people, probably too many um, for most of us to be able to count. Having said all that, on Tuesday, citizens of this formerly great country will go to the polls to cast their votes for what may be the sorriest slate of candidates ever to dawn an American election. In the words of FDR on December 7, 1941, it will be a day that will live in infamy. I'm not adequately prepared for this election in as much as I carelessly allowed my passport to expire and am ill-prepared to make any kind of salvific exit. This week I was advised by a friend of mine who is well-traveled to make my move to Canada as soon as possible because they'll be closing their borders. Fortunately for us, our hope is not in this government or for that matter any government. Back in the day, don't you just love that phrase? Back in the day, when people were more reasonable, ideas were posited and advanced through argument, which was structured around a set of prescribed rules posited by men like Plato and Aristotle, two of the great ones. Reasonableness, as defined by their guidelines, was a shared value for any thinking person. If you've been following this election, the campaigns have consisted of a trail of abusive ad hominems, which are attacks on the personalities of the candidates. And of course, the lives of both candidates have been cornucopias of incredibly horrible, horrible choices, leaving a lot of opportunity to find grist for the ad hominem mill. Which brings us to our gospel lesson from St. Luke 20. Luke 20 consists of a series of pericopes where the aristocrats of Jesus' day are trying to trap Jesus into saying things that are heretical and blasphemous. In each case, Jesus' sophisticated use of language paints his adversaries into a corner where it is their heads that ultimately find their way to the shopping block, so to speak. His adversaries ask a series of questions with which they hope to be able to trip him up. First, they want to know whether John's baptism was from heaven or from man. Next, they want to know, is it acceptable to pay taxes to Caesar? Then, in today's lessons, the Sadducee introduces a question about the resurrection which is fascinating in as much as they didn't believe in resurrection anyway. The question they raised is utterly ridiculous. 
Hebrew law protected the integrity of women to ensure that widows would be adequately cared for. You will recall from Acts 6 that the primary purpose for ordaining the first deacons was to ensure that widows were being adequately taken care of. But as you will see, the Sadducees are not really concerned about the well-being of women in their question. Their concern is about the dead man leaving this world without progeny. So the Sadducees contrived this ridiculous scenario as a background to their question. According to St. Luke, the scenario goes like this. First, they expound what the law says is supposed to happen in the event that a man dies childless. His brother was to take um, his wife to be his own wife and would have children with her on behalf of the deceased brother. I don't know what was supposed to happen if the brother's wife wasn't particularly attracted to the brother. That's, as they say, another question. Now, here's the Sadducee scenario. A family has seven sons who die one at a time, with each having discharged his family responsibility to the older brothers, with no reproduction of children. Now the question. This woman has had seven husbands. Which one of them will be her husband in the resurrection? Right? The question on everybody's lips. <laughs> Jesus answers the question by providing us with a glimpse of what to expect with regard to intimate relationships in the kingdom for those who, in the words of Jesus, are considered worthy to attain to that age. One of the things that is hopeful about this passage is that people can ask utterly ridiculous questions, and the answer can provide a lot of really helpful and useful information, which is why um, we tell kids in school there's no such thing as a stupid question. We learn quite a bit about the age to come from these few words that Jesus speaks in response to this idiotic question. Jesus says that in the age to come, there will be no need for marriage. Moreover, since people will not die anymore, the Mosaic provision will be meaningless. In the age to come, people will be equal to the angels. The sons and daughters of God will be sons and daughters of the resurrection. Next, Jesus advances his argument about resurrection by appealing to Moses' own experience with the burning bush in the wilderness, where Moses refers to God as being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were by earthly standards dead. If there is no resurrection, why would someone who is dead need a God? Then he adds, he's not God of the dead but of the living, for all live to him. The Sadducees had enough for this round and decided that Jesus had spoken well, and so they didn't dare to ask another question. Lord only knows what the answer may have been. The advantage of this interchange for us is that Jesus' description of the structure of relationships on the other side provides us with a glimpse of life in that age. So what does he say? 
First, he intimates that everyone will not make the cut. Only those who are considered worthy to attain to that age will be included, which shoots a bit of a hole in the argument for universalism. Second, there will be no need for marriage in the next age, suggesting that the primary function of marriage in this age is procreation to replenish the earth. However, in the age to come, where there is no death, procreation will not be needed, eliminating the need for marriage. So, the question for us here today is how do we gain access to the group that is considered worthy of making it to the next level. The reformers had a way of messing that one up. St. Paul provides some insight in our lesson from 2 Thessalonians when he admonishes the church at Thessalonica to, quote, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. End quote. I'm going to repeat that because it's really important. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. And then he gives them this blessing. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort, who gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. After which he asks for their prayers. Pray for us, he says, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Did you get that? For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So how is it that we make it to the next level? Steadfastness. In the lesson from Hebrew scripture, Job went through quite an ordeal. But he endured it and came out of it a stronger man with even greater confidence in the power of his God to sustain him and to lift him up. Even when he was in the throes of the worst adversity, he did not lose heart. His wife at one point had advised him to curse God and die, which he never did. In the lesson read earlier, he makes this powerful affirmation of faith when he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Later today, when we go to the Eucharistic prayer, 
we're going to commemorate the lives of the saints that have come before us and have been significant influences on our lives. As Jude says, passing on the faith to us as it was once delivered to the saints. As a Benedictine, I think about dying every day. And I do that. Every time I go to um, celebrate the Eucharist, I celebrate the Eucharist as if it's my first time, as if it's my last time, and as if it is the most important time. In the tradition that I grew up in, my father was a deacon, a vocational deacon, and was for most of the time that I was um, growing up. And twice a year, our um, denomination had what we called Love Feast and Communion. You can read about the Love Feast in 1 Corinthians 11. It died out in most churches because of the abuses that St. Paul addresses to the church at Corinth. But our denomination did it twice a year, spring and fall. And just as in our denomination there was a hierarchy, ordained clergy um, sat in the front, deacons sat directly in front of them, and um, the laity sat behind them, men on one side, women on the other. When my brothers and I were old enough to be at communion, my father left the station that he was assigned sitting with the rest of the deacons, and he sat with his sons, um, back with, with the people. I'll never forget that. He's one of the people that will be on my list today. I would like for you to think about the people who are on your list and how it is that they made your list and the reasons that they're on the, your list. I also suggest to people that you look for the lives of the um, canonical saints, those that have been uh, canonized by the church, for models of what it means to live a Christian life. Because these are people that the church has looked at and said, good folk. They lived lives worth emulating. So we live in the hope of the resurrection. Even as we were buried and raised with Christ in baptism, we will be raised up with him on the last day to be with him throughout all eternity. And in that hope, we are joined with all the saints who in their labors now rest.